What impact could the election have on Opportunity Zones? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. On October 22nd and 23rd, hundreds of Opportunity Zone stakeholders convened for the Novogradic Fall 2020 Opportunity Zones Virtual Conference. And joining me to recap some of the key takeaways from the conference are Mike Novogradic and John Sharetti. Mike joins us from San Francisco, and John joins us from Dover, Ohio. Gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you. Feels great to be back. Yeah, very, very great to have you guys back with me again. We are one week from election day uh less than a week from election day i should say and mike i know that the election was one of the big themes that played throughout the conference last week can you just kind of recap what are some of the big takeaways from the conference as a whole yes i'd be happy to and thank you jimmy thanks for having john and me back on the show yours is a uh, must listen to podcast that I'm uh, following every week. So thank you for all that you're doing for Opportunity Zones. And thank you also, at a more personal level, for all you did for in supporting the uh, event itself. Uh, we had great attendance. We had hundreds of attendees. And one of the interesting things, I really would like to be in person. Uh, and hopefully our next event, which is in April, will be able to be in person. Our next event in April will definitely be live stream. And this was obviously all virtual. It uh, wasn't in person. But one of the features of being a virtual conference is it is all recorded. So we actually find that, you know, many attendees come in, they watch some of the sessions and some of the sessions they even watch later. So your listeners, if they are interested in any of the particular sessions, they still could even go in and register and attend after the fact. And we make them available for three months. But clearly one of the key, maybe the overriding theme of all the various sessions was the election. And the election is obviously uh, ends uh, in a week from the day. I like to say at some level, that Tuesday is the end of the election because <laughs> over 60 million have already voted. Uh, and by, who knows what that number will be by uh, next Tuesday, but certainly by the, uh, you know, by the end of the day on Tuesday, everyone will have voted who's uh, gonna vote. And then we'll just be counting the uh, ballots to see who wins the presidency and who controls the Senate. And that is one of the sort of driving themes when everyone asks me about opportunity zones and what impact the election could have. You really have to look and say, there's two factors, two binary factors that we're really looking at to see what impact the election is likely to have on the Opportunity Zones incentive and then the stress communities that they serve. Uh, one is obviously who controls the presidency. Does Donald Trump get reelected or does Joe Biden uh, get elected? Does Vice President Joe Biden get elected to be president? Sort of the Republicans or Democrats control the presidency and the administration and all the regulatory policy that the president controls. That's one of the binary items. The other is who controls the Senate? Uh, will the Democrats take control of the Senate or will Republicans keep control of the Senate? Uh, and we can talk a little bit later about what it means to control the Senate because <laughs> uh, you know the level of uh, control obviously matters and how the rules of the Senate are gonna matter. But do the Democrats control the Senate or Republicans? 
And I didn't mention the House representatives, but that's only because, you know, most expect the Democrats to retain control of the House representatives. They have a substantial, reasonable majority right now, and some are even projecting they'll pick up seats. Uh, maybe the Republicans can pick up seats on a net basis, but everyone expects the House to control. So we're sort of looking at it and saying, who controls the presidency? Who controls the Senate? Knowing the House stays Democrat, that provides the framework for analyzing what impact the election is going to have on opportunity zones. Right. It's definitely a big topic on the minds of a lot of investors and other participants in the opportunity zones incentive. I get asked that question a lot. Well, what happens if Biden wins? What happens if Trump is reelected? So, John, I want to turn to you now. And uh, again, assuming that the House results is a foregone conclusion that that the Democrats retain control of the House. John, what happens if President Trump is reelected? I guess I'll refer to it as the Trafalgar scenario, which is the only poll that has Trump. <laughs> but if Trump is reelected, and let's just say that the Senate stays Republican, I've heard many folks say that you know everything sort of remains the same. But President Trump did publicly express his desire to expand opportunity zones. He didn't give us much information around what that means, but he did express that desire. And we were fortunate enough at the conference to have Jerome Smith, who is the deputy assistant to the president. And he was our keynote at the conference. And he shed some light on what it might look like, this expansion that Trump's referred to. He noted three answer, three areas of expansion. His first, he talked about potentially doubling the number of eligible tracks. He sort of referred to giving governors the second bite at the apple, indicating, as we, I think, all sort of are aware, that it did come on kind of fast. Um, folks really didn't know what opportunity zones were or sort of how they operated. And so he thought it'd be a good idea to give governors and mayors a chance to select additional tracks. And he, he sort of mentioned maybe 25% more. So so that that, that was um, the first thing he referred to. And then he talked about extension around some of the time frames so that investors can realize the full value of the incentive, which I sort of took to mean um that an extension of the um 2026 date by a couple of years so folks can stay around for the full seven years at least new investors and and get the full 15 percent and then lastly he mentioned legislation that will require data collection and impact studies which you know is coming from both sides of the aisle so that that's what jaron had to say with respect to the senate um, and sort of their desires their legislative desires um, you know, we had uh, invited Senator Scott, he had scheduling conflicts, um, but we were very fortunate to have his legislative assistant, Emily Lavery, join us. And uh, she commented that she expected, you know, bipartisan support to continue to grow in the program. She voiced the senator's support for the extension as well, similar to what Jerron indicated, by at least two years to restore this 15% benefit for new investors. And that reporting as well, and then limiting the future investment in a handful of zones, the contiguous zones that sort of got some bad press. And then when you look at Senator Scott's Impact Act, it sort of captures most of what she was talking about. The Impact Act, it, it was about a year ago, a bill that Senator Scott sponsored. Um, it called for reporting as well for funds and investors, penalties for bad actors, and Again, uh, comprehensive reporting by Treasury once it compiles all the data from these investors and the like. 
And then he also called for a comprehensive community impact study every five years. And so that all would be legislative, of course. And so that, I think that's what we could expect from a legislative perspective if you know we have this Trafalgar effect or Trafalgar scenario in the election. Um, of course, you know, Democrats most likely will still control the House, and so they'll need to concur with any legislation. Really, whether the Senate stays Republican or Democrat, if President Trump is in office, then you know there, there's going to need to be a bipartisan legislation in order to get anything passed. And I think it's good to see that there is bipartisan agreement around reporting and around perhaps some of these zones not being considered opportunity zones in the future. With the Democratic Senate, of course, there'll be a greater push for Democratic priorities, and Mike's going to cover that a little later on in the podcast. Yeah, that makes sense that, uh, you know, if Trump remains in office, if he gets reelected, no matter if the Democrats take control of the Senate or the Republicans take control of the Senate, you're still going to have a Democrat House. So either way, it's going to have to be some bipartisan cooperation on any new legislation that, that goes through. One other thing I did want to mention is uh, um, the, the Trafalgar scenario. I like that you called it that. I, I would like to point out that the Trafalgar group was one of the few polling organizations that got the 2016 election largely right. They were one of the most accurate ones. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out over the next week or so. Uh, it'll also be interesting to see when we actually find out the results of the election. Maybe Mike can go into that for us a little bit here, too. Uh, Mike, I will turn to you now. Um, let's let's take a look at the other scenario. What if Biden gets elected? What happens with opportunity zones and what does that look like? Yeah, that's definitely a, uh, a scenario that could look a lot more different than the path that we're on right now, because we're definitely right now on this bipartisan path where... Yeah, for for legislation to pass the Congress, you need bipartisan support. Uh, and if Trump's reelected, as you pointed out, with Trump in the White House and the House controlled by Democrats, it'll still need to be bipartisan. Uh, if Biden is elected president, then the first step is from a regulatory policy perspective, you could definitely expect to see changes in terms of how opportunity zones are regulated, irrespective as to who controls the Senate. Uh, if the Senate is controlled by Republicans, then it'll have to be bipartisan, whatever legislation passes. So if you have a Biden president and a, Bi and a Republican Senate and a Democratic House, then congressional, in terms of legislative initiatives and the like, uh, it's not going to be all that ex different, slightly more uh, Democratic tilted, if you will, but not all that dramatically different uh, than the scenario of Trump's uh, president, because it'll have to be bipartisan. I'll talk in a moment about what it could what it could mean if we have a democratic sweep, or as some are suggesting, a potential blue wave or a blue tsunami. If it's even more dramatic, but I wanted to first talk about the regulatory policy, because that's the area where, as president, uh, Joe Biden could have an impact without passing additional uh, legislation. And the best place to look in terms of uh, Vice President Biden's current view on Opportunity Zones is their website, uh, where they specifically have uh, incorporated Opportunity Zones as a policy to be supportive of, uh, but at the same time making changes uh, to the incentive from a regulatory perspective. Uh, and I think the area we get the most questions about is probably have to do with certification and how opportunity funds might be regulated. 
Uh, and this is something that, you know, Biden elected, we expect our opportunity zones working group to be particularly active, where our working group is always active. But if Biden does win the presidency, then we'll be going back and revisiting a lot of the suggestions we made on the whole certification process of opportunity funds. And right now, as you know, and the listeners know, uh, you know, funds self-certify. Uh, and we wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Biden became president that the self-certification rules change uh, and there's some level of, uh, of compliance and oversight through the certification process. And we could also see the CDFI fund, which currently has a limited role in identifying the qualifying areas to be a more expanded role in terms of uh, the overseeing of qualified opportunity funds. So we'll be spending close attention to that and then developing our own recommendations with respect to that. But I would note in terms of, you know, the three major areas that uh, Vice President Biden has discussed with respect to opportunity zones is one, he wants to incentivize opportunity funds to partner with nonprofit or community oriented organizations and produce a community benefit plan for each investment. Uh, and many believe that you could do that through the certification requirement process. A second area that he wants to focus on is having opportunities on benefits be reviewed by the Department of Treasury. And when I think of being reviewed by the Department of Treasury, I think CDFI fund, which is a department or a agency within the Department of Treasury. Uh, so you could easily see how that ties into certification as well. And then third, in, in introducing transparency. We've talked about reporting and the need for legislation to incorporate reporting. Some believe that if through the certification process, you could require detailed reporting as a requirement to be certified. So there's a lot that could happen on the oversight uh, of the funds themselves, but also on the re regulatory side, from the IRS perspective, you know, we, through our Opportunity Zones Working Group, submitted comments, for instance, on how the regulations could be adjusted to encourage investment in affordable housing. And they, unfortunately, a lot of our suggestions were adopted, uh, but we didn't bend the arc uh, well enough on affordable housing. So there's a number of provisions in the regulations that uh, we'd like to see modified to increase the incentive for investing in affordable housing. Uh, so we think that if, you know, if Biden were to become president, then we might be able to revisit some of the treasury regulations to better uh, support investment in affordable housing. Uh, so, so there's a lot that can happen on the regulatory side. On the legislative side, uh, if, as I noted earlier, if the Republicans, you know, do keep the Senate, then it's going to be, you know, pretty bipartisan in terms of legislation and all the items John discussed would still be probably the most relevant and John's summary is a good overview. You know, the more uh, interesting <laughs> and from a legislative perspective, the greater possibilities happen if the Democrats take over the Senate. And the interesting part about the Democrats taking over control of the Senate is no one projects they would have 60 votes. Everyone thinks there might be 50 votes, 51, 52. If there are 50 votes and Biden wins the presidency, then Kamala Harris would be the tie-breaking vote as vice president. But the majority won't be 60. And the same of 60, as you know, and most of the listeners know, is to overcome a filibuster, you need 60 votes. So as a general matter, you would say, well, if the Democrats control the Senate, they need 60 votes to be able to really pass any legislation under current rules. So that would suggest maybe you still have to be bipartisan. But there is a mechanism you can use to get around the filibuster, and it's called budget reconciliation. I won't go into all that here, but they could use budget reconciliation and only need 50 votes. They could also do away with the filibuster. 
and I won't get into that whole debate about whether or not the Democrats should do away with the filibuster in the Senate, but that's another way. So it's quite possible that the Democrats would be able to, if they take over the control of the Senate, pass uh, a tax bill with 50 votes that could affect opportunity zones. So then you might say, what would we expect to see <laughs> if that was the case? Uh, and we already talked about reporting, we'd expect to see that. Uh, we actually would expect to see some zones phased out. And it may be 50, 100, 200 zones, zones that are higher income, zones that might be contiguous tracks, and other zones that uh, have gotten some of the bad press. A handful of zones have gotten bad press, and even Senator Scott, as John noted, uh, has suggested some zones might be worthy of uh, phasing out so that current investments would still qualify, but future investments wouldn't. And through the Opportunities Working Group, we've been working on some draft language to ensure that all existing investments would still qualify. But there also could be more expansive limitations. Some businesses could be disallowed. CDFIs, you know, community development finance institutions, could become qualified businesses to invest in. And a lot in the community development field would love to see that. Um, there could be additional funding provided through other grant programs and the like to tie in to opportunities on investing to create deeper equity subsidy. There's a lot possible there. Um, and then maybe the one thing I would also keep a close eye on is the role of Senator Ron Wyden. And Ron, Senator Ron Wyden did introduce a bill uh, that had a number of reporting changes. And the reason why I particularly focus on Senator Ron Wyden is if the Democrats do take control of the Senate, he would become the Senate Finance Committee Chairman. And as the chairman of that committee, uh, he would obviously have a great influence on tax bills. And he did introduce a bill that your listeners might want to go in and look at. You can find it on our website that runs through a number of provisions, a lot of what I just discussed. But that would definitely be something that, you know, I'm sure he would be turning to as he came up with legislation. But that's a lot to, there's a lot there in what I just sort of said. But I did want to talk about one other item that, that you've talked about before on your podcast, and it has to do with the proposal that Joe Biden has uh, in his tax plan to increase uh, the, both the corporate tax rate and the individual tax rate. And he proposes increase the individual tax rate to 39.6% on income levels over a million dollars. And he also proposes to increase the uh, corporate tax, or I should say it's 39.6% on incomes over 400,000, but 39.6% for tax, taxable gains uh, when the tax income is over a million. So that's a notable uh, tax rate increase on capital gains. Uh, but I, I would just say that, you know, the, the interesting part about the increase in tax rates is a lot of clients are coming to us saying, do I really want to defer a capital gain into next year if there's a potential to be subject or not into next year, you know, into 2026, if there's a potential for higher tax rates in 2026? Should I just recognize the gain now versus subjecting it to higher tax rate? But as you've noted, you know, the value of the step up and you know, the fact that if you hold the investment for 10 years, you don't pay tax on capital gain is really valuable if the capital gains tax rate does go up. So it's a little bit of a higher tax rate, you know, in a few years or higher taxes paid in a few years to really save a lot uh, in 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot to unpack there, Mike. Thanks for that detailed answer. The well, I, I would also suggest that, you know, 2026 is still a long ways off. We, we're going to have yet another presidential election before then. So who knows what 2024 might bring in terms of a, a, a different administration or changes to the to the tax code. So unpacking your answer, it seems like from what you are saying, Mike, and what from and from what John said earlier, that we can count on a couple of things happening with opportunity zones 
no matter what happens with this election, we're very likely to see uh, more reporting. I think that's there's broad bipartisan support to introduce more reporting requirements. Uh, what form those take exactly is subject to you know some some further examination. Uh, the devil's in the detail, I suppose. Uh, and and it sounds like uh, you know both parties may be in favor of phasing out some zones. Uh, you know, maybe a handful of zones or. Or, or I think you said 100 or 200 zones, maybe those contiguous tract zones that don't actually meet the low-income threshold. Is, is, is that correct? That's right, on a prospective basis. Right, got it. And, but the, the main differences would be fund oversight and what could happen on the regulatory side and, and what kind of new tax bill Biden and uh, Democrat Senate, Senate might be able to, to get through um, and then you mentioned the widen bill. I'll, I'll link to that from our show notes page today as well. That's, that's one to keep an eye on as well. John, I want to turn back to you now and get your take on any other highlights from the conference. We've been speaking about the election a lot, but, uh, there was more that went on at the conference besides just election talk. Well, what other highlights would you like to focus on from the conference from last week? I think sort of general takeaways that we're encouraging is, you know, when you look at our initial conference in New Orleans to today, um, you know, the discussion around operating businesses in our, in our latest conference um, is, is, was an incredible increase. Um, I was encouraged by all the talk of folks looking to operating businesses. And then the anecdotal examples of the types of operating businesses like broadband, data centers. There's been a number of vertical farming investments uh, and even solar coupled with real estate. Um, and a lot of the real estate being sort of owner-occupied type real estate, you know, which is really directed toward the operating businesses that, that are operating, that are uh, occupying it. So, so that was encouraging. And then the evolution of community strategy, there was a lot of talk up front as how, you know, the opportunity zones, the power of the opportunity zones was to have this focus uh, concentrated um, and uh, all stakeholders sort of working to invest in areas that localities felt were important to the growth of the community. And, and uh, the strategies around that, um, there's a number of folks like Bruce Katz uh, with the governance project and the like. Um, it seemed to really have made effect on communities you hear you heard in the community panel, um, real strategies and real people coming together and um, being able to sort of maximize investment for transformation on inclusive projects. So even though there's not reporting yet, and even there, though um, there's not a mandate or requirements to do this stuff, people are doing it. And uh, it, it, was, it was encouraging to, to see that. And it was a real uh, difference from the earlier conferences where folks were primarily talking about real estate. Um, I know uh, Jimmy Ashley had the operating business session, and he actually said he's getting more calls today for operating business investments than he is for real estate. It's sort of flipped. So, so that was encouraging. Um, uh, other highlights is, you know, we actually did have um, Kevin Corinth, I, I chaired, or I moderated the panel, Kevin Corinth, um, who's the chief, chief economist for the Council of Economic Advisors. And in August, they came out with an initial assessment 
on opportunity zones. And he gave a short presentation around that assessment. And uh, some takeaways from that is he did, based on his research and analysis, I indicate that the poverty rate for the opportunity zone is double that of all other census tracts. Um, and based on that report, they estimated that $75 billion has been raised by the end of 2019, and most of which wouldn't have entered opportunity zones without the incentive. And so, so that was that was an interesting fact out of that report. Um, they actually <clears throat> used our investment um, survey um, as data to help inform their uh, capital survey. So uh, that was that was nice to hear that they used our survey. I'll talk about our survey a little bit as well. But one other thing that we did come up with is that the housing values and opportunity zones, um, the opportunity zone designation based on their research, uh, increased the value of housing by 1.1% through 2019. And each dollar of equity raised by opportunity funds only cost the government 15 cents. So those are the main takeaways of the report. And you can, you can find that report. I know you may, you've mentioned it in the past, Jimmy, and maybe probably have a link on your website already to it, but it's an interesting report. Um, but I did say that they, in order to um, project or estimate the fundraising to date, they actually used an overgradic uh, qualified opportunity fund survey. And what that is, is we actually track a number of funds. I think it's 838 funds to date, and 598 of those funds of which have been funded. Um, and they're multi-investor funds, um, and we we do direct surveys with those funds as well as get data in the public <clears throat> space like SEC filings and the like. And uh, we produce a fundraising survey, and we uh, through October 20th, um, our survey um, indicates that 12.8 billion dollars has been raised um, by the subset of funds that we track. So. Uh, a lot different than the 75 billion, but again, it's just a subset that we're tracking. So I, I do want to encourage your listeners, any of them that are funds that aren't already providing data to us, that they can contact Christiana Cohen of Novogratic or me, um, and uh, we can set you up to start providing information and get your fund listed on our survey. Um, of, of the fundraising survey that we produce, 82% um, of it's residential real estate today and 17% uh, is commercial real estate. Less than 1% is operating businesses um, at this point. So we're hoping to see that, that go up. So that's sort of the main takeaways from the conference. Jim. Yeah, that's great, John. Thank you. Uh, I, I, th I think you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, we have seen that at OZ Pros, you mentioned my partner, Ashley Tyson, had mentioned on his panel that he's seeing a big uptick in folks interested in doing operating business investment and, and you know that's anecdotally i can share the same thing that's what i'm hearing as well is there's a lot more people contacting me through my site about uh potentially doing operating business investing and and doing capital raising in that asset class as opposed to just real estate i guess the uh, the it, this investment vehicle has come a long way this incentive has come a long way the past two three years here uh become a more mature marketplace now and i, I love seeing entrepreneurs with really good business ideas come to us and want to use the opportunity zone incentive and leverage the opportunity zone incentive to help them raise additional capital. You mentioned the 
report that the Council of Economic Advisors uh, division of the White House released two months ago that $75 billion of private capital has been raised by qualified opportunity funds. And that's just as of the end of 2019. I'd be really interested to see them update that next year. I'd love to see what uh, what they say by the end of 2020, because you know I have a suspicion that that number is going to only grow much larger. Uh, I also find it interesting that I, you know, I believe the uh, Treasury Secretary uh, Secretary Mnuchin had estimated a hundred billion dollars would flow into this investment vehicle uh, over the life of the program. So we're well ahead of pace, if I'm not mistaken. Is is that your take as well? I mean, that uh, is right. That was the number that uh, had been used with the administration. And that's also the number that's consistent with what the Joint Committee on Taxation, the scoring arm for tax provisions in Congress, uh, had estimated. So it's definitely well uh, sort of above that pace. Um, I'd also note, though, with respect to the survey, you know, our numbers, you know, still under $13 billion, which is, uh, you know, if you think, if you look, go back, you know, six or seven months, we were at 10 billion. And COVID-19 has definitely had an impact in terms of slowing the immediacy, the immediacy of a lot of capital contributions to qualified opportunity funds since it extended the deadline to the end of this year. So we are expecting a huge increase uh, in investment and opportunity funds between now and, and the end of the year uh, to deal with the deadlines that uh, Congress extended. So we think by you know, early next year, our capital raising numbers that we're tracking are going to be substantially higher. Yeah, I'm expecting the same thing. And just to reiterate what John said earlier, you, you know, you guys are providing a very valuable service with that capital raising survey that you have. So yeah, if you are out there and you are raising capital and you have a fund, uh, please do report it to Novogratic. You can get in touch with with John. I'll be sure to link to his email address and Christiana's email uh, in the show notes page for today's episode. Uh, gentlemen, you've got uh, another Opportunity Zone conference coming up. It seems like they just keep going. Uh, when t- tell us a little bit about the next one. What's on tap for that one? When it is and where it is? Is it is it all virtual this time again, or might it be in person? <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully not. So our next conference is in Long Beach. Uh, Long Beach has a number of Opportunity Zones in that part of California, and it's April twenty second and twenty third, and we're definitely live streaming it. So, you know, we're, we know that even if we can hold it in person, many maybe won't be ready to travel. So we will live stream the event. And we're hoping that we can do a, a live event. And we're waiting to see, depending upon what, uh, how the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, evolves. And we'll only hold the event if it's safe to hold. But we're currently hoping that we'll be able to be a live event. Uh, but it is uh, those dates. And we are still working on the agenda for it. So I would, you know, we welcome your thoughts in terms of what sessions we should have. We welcome your listeners' thoughts on what sessions we should have. You know, at the end of this last conference, we always survey attendees as to what they would like to see. So we're uh, still working on the agenda and we welcome advice from others, but it'll definitely be focused on, you know, legislative activity. Uh, I certainly expe- expect that by next, next April, we'll likely have had, there's a good chance we'll have had some major legislation passed. Uh, Congress with tax provisions. So there'll be a lot to report on. And also there'll be a lot to report in terms of what's happening with respect to the infrastructure bill and the like, as well as what could be happening on the regulatory front. There's going to be a lot of areas to cover next April. Yeah, I agree. There should be a lot to report on um, 
even if Trump gets reelected, I think there'll be plenty to report on, but especially if Biden gets elected as a new president uh, with a lot more fund oversight and bringing some new ideas on the regulatory side, I think you'll have uh, more than enough to cover. I'm not sure two days will be enough, but uh, I, I wish you luck and I would encourage everyone listening to register for that. Uh, where can uh, where can they go to register for that? Is the registration open yet? It is. Just go to www.novaco.com slash events, or they can just search Novogratic Conferences. Fantastic. Well, you know, before we go, you guys have been on the podcast a few times. I've highlighted Novogratic services, and many of our listeners are very familiar with what you do. But in case there's a new listener out there or, or someone who's just learning about the Opportunity Zone space, could you tell us a little bit about the services that Novogratic provides and, and why uh, – you know, someone who is developing a fund or, or maybe a real estate developer may want to use your services? Yeah, we do do more than sponsor conferences and provide public policy uh, advice. So, John, go ahead and describe the variety of services we provide for opportunity fund clients and qualified opportunity zone businesses and investors and the like. Sure. So we, I mean, we spend a lot of time advising you know through our transaction advisory services and that that entails helping structure funds uh, ensuring that businesses are qualified uh, helping to inform the benefit of the incentive um, so that funds can communicate that to their investors you know, we do a, a, a lot of financial modeling around these transactions and, and and really help businesses that may not be qualified even sort of come up with a strategy to help them get to the point where they are qualified. So we're part of a lot of uh, closings, uh, transaction teams, and, and that that's sort of our consulting around this space. And then, you know, we're a traditional accounting firm, so we do tax and audit. So we're, we, you know, this is sort of the, the season or the period where we're signing up a number of funds, new funds to do audits, um, and uh, funds that we're already doing audits of and helping with year-end planning making sure all their compliance is in order before they get to the end of the year and then have some time to fix things that might be broken. And so it's a, it's a busy time right now working with a number of funds out there, planning for these audit and tax engagements and ensuring that their compliance is in order. And it's been exciting to see all the progress funds have made over the last year, um, you know, the, the money that they've raised and the projects that they've done. So it's a, it's a fun time of year. Um, you know, business has been great. We're always looking for more. So if anybody um, wants to contact us, you can contact me directly for any of our services. Fantastic. And uh, again, before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about the two of you and Novogratic? Sure. Um, our website is novoco.com, N-O-V-O-C-O.com. And we actually have an Opportunity Zones portal um, in our services section. Fantastic. Yeah, very valuable resource there. Your Opportunity Zones Resource Center uh, actually helped get me up to speed when I was first starting to learn about Opportunity Zones. I went to you guys as one of my first go-to sources when I was uh, first learning about Opportunity Zones way back when. Uh, Well, for our listeners out there, I will have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website, and you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast, and there you'll find links to all of the resources that Mike, John, and I discussed on today's show. I'll be sure to link to the Widen Bill as well as the Opportunity Zone Resource Center at novaco.com. And I'll post some information about their upcoming Opportunity Zones conference in Long Beach. Mike and John, again, it's been a pleasure. 
thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to join my listeners and me. Thank you. Great. Thank, thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. Thanks for everything you do for the opportunities on incentive and distressed communities it serves. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.